practicing together, it's the first half moon of the new year. It's a time people make New Year's resolutions. You might call that Aditana Bharami, making resolutions, determinations to do with our practice towards enlightenment. Maybe just resolve to continue the training for another year, reaffirm our commitment to the robes, to the life of a samana. When we put on the robes of a Buddhist monk, it's a very direct reminder of what we're doing. We're a disciple of the Buddha, following in his footsteps. And every day, the robes symbolize that quest for enlightenment. So every time we look down at our own robes, or we put them on, can be a time to establish mindfulness of the path, the purpose of our practice, why we're here. It helps. You shave your head and wear the robes of a monk. It helps to remind you what you're doing. So it brings up sati in daily life. Reminds you of the vinaya. The training as a bhikkhu, training rules. And when we ordain, we undertake to commit to the higher training. In sila, we say adi sila sikha. Adi is higher, sila, morality, conduct. Sikha means training. So if we're ever stuck for explaining or understanding what does a bhikkhu do, well, it's a training in sila, morality, virtue. Adi jitta sikha, training the mind, the higher training of the mind. <coughs> Particularly the development of samadhi through the practice of sati, sampajanya, artapi, diligent, ardent effort, developing samadhi, kanika samadhi, upajana samadhi, apana samadhi. Apana samadhi, first level of jhana through to the fourth level of jhana. Adijita Sikha, this is our training. Adipanya Sikha, the higher training in wisdom, insight.
into the truth, true nature of phenomena, penetrating the Four Noble Truths, understanding the nature of dukkha, its cause, the release from dukkha, the cessation of dukkha, and the path that leads to the cessation of dukkha. The training in wisdom, insight. These are the trainings that we undertake as monks. These are what we do, this is our duty. If ever we're not sure what we're doing, come back to these three things. But it's a commitment one has to reaffirm, reconfirm daily. Commitment to the robes, commitment to the training. As a Buddhist monk, we can leave the training at any time. We simply find somebody who can understand the words and tell them we're leaving the training, we're giving it up to return to the lay life. So when it's that easy, then we have to be doubly vigilant of our own moods and our own intentions, because it could be so easy just to transgress the training rules or just give up the training, which would be a shame. So we have to be vigilant to keep reaffirming our commitment to the training. Reminding ourselves of the Vinaya, of the meditations and of the Dhamma. Reflecting on the Dhamma, listening to it, reflecting on it over and over again. Much of our training is about the development of sati, so reminding ourselves of what we're doing and bringing up presence of mind to be aware of our state of mind. So obviously the path of practice that leads to the end of suffering is involved with abandoning unwholesome states of mind cultivating wholesome states of mind, skillful states of mind, and developing the path factors, purifying the mind till it free from defilement. But we can see as we train that we're very much can be the victims of our own lapses of mindfulness it's so easy for one moment the mind to be in a skillful state, the next just falls into a, an unwholesome mental state, just like that. It'll be prompted by some external situation, or sometimes just our own memories or thoughts popping up, and it can change from the wholesome to the unwholesome in just a split second, just like that. So the flavor of our practice is developing this heedful approach, taking care with our practice and training. Understand how the training, it's an integrated training. 
body, speech and mind. All the aspects of the training support the arising of wholesome dhammas, wholesome states of mind. But we have to keep applying ourselves to the training. If we become weak or lax, not vigilant, then it's so easy for unwholesome states of mind to arise. Even when we're vigilant, the power of our old karma can mean the kilesas can be conditioned at any moment, can just pop up depending on what's happening. <clears throat> you know, when we're not particularly vigilant, you just hear a few words that don't agree with you from another person in the community and already an unwholesome mind state pops up, conditioned by those words. The hearing of the words, the dana, the upadana that arises. Could be the words of others, it could be what we see around us, could be memories be painful experiences, just the pain of sitting meditation for a long period gives rise to states of aversion and dislike and so on. Very easy for the mind just to fall into an unwholesome mind state. If we don't do anything about it then we're not following the training. It's as if we temporarily give up the training the Buddha didn't praise a bhikkhu who just indulges in unwholesome states. He praised those who recognize them for what they are and then swiftly, <coughs> swiftly abandon them using mindfulness, using wisdom, using sila samadhi panya. The Buddha didn't praise holding on to unwholesome states of mind. So if we do find ourselves falling into greed, anger, jealousy, aversion, hatred, ill will, fear, anxiety, to have enough mindfulness to recognize that and straight away organize our practice at that moment to do something about it, not to give in, not to follow the defilement that's arisen. When it comes down to it on a daily basis, that's much of our practice. It's just recognizing what's going on in our mind, sorting it out so that we bring up the wholesome, preserve it, develop it, and we abandon the unwholesome. You've got to be able to recognize what is wholesome and unwholesome first. You've got to have enough presence of mind, mindfulness to know that. So much of our Vinaya training, the training rules, the practices, the routines, the meditations are supporting that, encouraging us to develop mindful awareness of our actions, our speech, and then internally what's going on in the mind. We remind ourselves of training rules, we remind ourselves of wholesome states of mind that come up in conjunction with the training rules, like hiri otapa, a sense of shame and being shy of kilesas and what they can do to our minds, shying away from actions and speech that come through greed, anger, delusion, feeling a sense of shame, 
embarrassment, feeling uneasy when unwholesome states of mind take over the mind and lead to behavior, certain kinds of behavior. An awareness of the consequences of giving in to unwholesome states of mind, otapa, fear of the consequences. An awareness of karma, an awareness of the disadvantages of following kilesa. Hiri Otapa and these two qualities constantly coming back to them as we train in the Vinaya. Guarding over our behavior, training in the rules, bringing up energy to follow the rules, follow the practices, not to be stubborn, not to be indulgent of the defilements. And bringing up other skillful qualities changing the mind of the defilements to the one of wholesome dhammas and changing from being stubborn to being being say respectful, kind, putting effort into what we're doing, considering, wisely considering what we're doing. And this is how you change your human mind by applying the Dhamma in different situations. It might be just applying the rules, just following the rules, having mindfulness of that, sati vinaya, mindfulness of the vinaya, and developing these wholesome qualities to guard over the mind from following the, the path of defilement. You also need to develop great patience Patience with the training rules, patience with our own mind that reacts, patience with and the different kinds of dukkha that might arise in the course of our practice. The development of sila, of vinaya, and then patience are very much the supportive conditions for samadhi to arise. Obviously the practice of mindfulness as well. But we're directing our mindfulness to, to the precepts, our rules, and to establishing patience, endurance of the different kinds of experiences that normally stimulate craving. And the Buddha said we use samadhi and its component factors, causal factors, to deal with craving. Craving is you know, it's the coarse movements of the mind, the emotional reactions that keep popping up, stir the mind up, take away mindfulness and wisdom. We use our sila just to calm ourselves down, restrain the worst excesses of our craving, and use patience. As we meditate, you need patience as we go around our daily life with the simplicity of the lifestyle, fewness of possessions and so on. We need great patience. So the sila and the patience combine to limit the uh, damaging effects of craving when it takes over the heart. So that means just being patient, say, with what other people say and do around us, not always judging, falling into moods of based in anger or jealousy have enough patience and enough 
precepts not to always react to things with our moods, but just to be able to be patient with a different, difficult situation. It could be internal feelings of tiredness or pain as we meditate, the tiredness of just living the daily life of a bhikkhu. Not to give in to the kilesas, not to let it stir up craving which comes out into our behavior. That requires sina, requires patience, kanti. And from this, you know, these are two very supportive conditions with the practice of mindfulness for the arising of samadhi. Samadhi is a training in this adijitasika development, more calm states of mind, the firmness of mind, so not wavering because of different situations that arise, not falling into emotional states, getting really high with the pleasant things that happen already down when things don't go so well. More evenness of mind comes with samadhi, stability, steadiness. And that allows wisdom to function better, to develop adipanya sikha, training in wise reflection, looking, learning from experience, penetrating deeper into the nature of phenomena. You, know, you can't possibly hope to develop insight if the mind isn't even steady yet. If it's always reacting with craving to every, everything that happens, we have to pacify the craving through the practice of sila, patience, mindfulness, samadhi. Then you can get right down to the roots, root cause of dukkha, which is upadana, attachment. Attachment to the sense of self, the views, the opinions, the deeply ingrained sense of self that arises surrounding our you know, form, the physical form, the body, sense contact, and so on. So all these areas are areas of training, You're remembering to keep the precepts, remembering to be patient, remembering to be mindful, remembering to investigate the Dhamma. The better we do that, then you can even turn dukkha into something useful, because you contemplate dukkha rather than just react to it. Say you're meditating and you've got pain, you're tired and you've got pain in the knees and pain in the neck in the back or something. And we're learning to investigate that, steady the mind, practice patience, not just impatiently move around or get up and give up the meditation, but remind ourselves just to be patient with it. Steady the mind, calm the mind and then investigate it. If you have a pain, get used to looking at pain and learning from it. Where is it? What kind of pain is it? Is it a throbbing pain or a piercing pain or a pain that spreads out over a wide area or is it very sharp in one place? Watch how it comes and goes. Sometimes we just have a dull ache. Sometimes it's more intense. You're learning by establishing mindfulness and reflecting on it rather than just reacting with craving, aversion, immediately trying to run away from the pain, get up, run away, move. Actually learning from it, 
so you understand it better rather than just reacting with craving. Practicing patience with the different sensations that arise in meditation, you know, that gives you patience that you can use with any unpleasant situation in your daily life that arises. And it gives you this foundation that your wisdom, your insight can start to work. You can actually direct the mind to know things on a deeper level. You can just settle the craving and then look more deeply at the upadana, the sense of self that forms based on body, feelings, the mind, the objects of mind. There's no no way you can see an Ichidukha anatta if the mind's moving all over the place with craving. We have to practice, a, find ways to steady the mind, see the mindfulness, kanti, and then look with wisdom, investigate. A lot of the peace we gain just comes through investigating, getting more clarity, understanding more, just what, what is what in our experience, rather than always just reacting with aversion or moving with attraction towards things, grasping at the pleasant things and fighting with the unpleasant things. And just learning to steady the mind and look and learn and see how craving conditions attach Attachment, attachment leads on to more dukkha. If we want to free ourselves from dukkha, then it's worth training to investigate even things that are very unpleasant that we don't particularly want to look at and learn from. See how pain conditions fear. You know, or if I don't move, what's going to happen to my leg? What's going to happen to me with all this pain? Or maybe when we're ill, we have anxiety, worry about our body, our state of health. But rather than just follow the worry and the anxiety or the fear, just stop and look at it as a phenomenon. Establish mindfulness and investigate. You know, how often is that fear there? It's not there all the time, 24 hours a day. It'll come and go. When you think of certain things, fear comes up, anxiety comes up. See if you can change the way you're thinking. That fear might just pass away again. Fear comes strongly, sometimes it comes weakly. Sometimes it lasts a long time, sometimes just briefly. It can be just a moment of panic and then fades. But investigate it. And if you can see fear as an impermanent mood, then it's not so overpowering or overwhelming to the mind because you just know it's another mood comes and goes according to its own set of conditions. Kilesas are like that, they're just visitors to the mind. And if you can understand what causes them and how impermanent they are, then you're freeing the mind from kilesa. You're undermining its ability to overtake the mind, overwhelm the mind. So naturally the mind is freer, it's brighter. We have so much time to train in wisdom. You know, we can reflect on things that have already happened as well, even if we can't always have 
clear insight from moment to moment through our day, through our practice. We can reflect on things that have already happened. Achilles that came up and passed away in, the, in previous times, in different situations that have already happened. How did Achilles arise? What did it do to me? Was it good? Was it not? Was it correct or not? Was it from delusion or not? Look back and learn from your own experience. And the Buddha always reminded us that we can practice this path because the human mind can change, can learn. It's not fixed. Nothing is fixed. The moods of the mind are not fixed. The places are not fixed. Even though we delude ourselves, we say, oh, it's always like this, or it's no good. I'm no good. Now, these are just moods in themselves. They're just thoughts, just views and opinions. Nothing is fixed. Nothing is certain. So we've always got the chance to free ourselves by learning. So sometimes we learn from our mistakes. Every two weeks we bring up our sila, at the very least every two weeks, really. It should be a daily thing on our own. We reflect on our sila every day. But at least formally every two weeks we bring our sila up with a trusted bhikkhu to make ourselves mindful of where kilesa overtook us, where we had lapses in our mindfulness, got deluded. We said something, we did something or failed to do something we should have done, you might tell your friend what you've done or didn't do that was wrong, making yourself very mindful, opening up, being very clear, this is what went wrong, this is a mistake, and making that resolution to keep the rule better, properly, more completely. And this is how we change our karmic conditioning such a skillful process the Buddha gave us. We, we use the Vinaya to observe our behavior, give us a standard and train ourselves and then if we do make mistakes we've still got a way to learn from them. Nothing is fixed. We can learn if we're willing to look and even to reveal them to other people sometimes. And the Buddha praised this. He praised somebody who actually admits their mistakes and even admits them to a teacher or to another trusted bhikkhu. He criticized bhikkhus who conceal their breaches of sila. So I say, if it was a, one of the Sangati Sesha offenses, you know, we have bariwasa when we conceal something. We have penalties and practices that we take on because we really lost our hiriotapa, lost our direction. Now the Buddha encouraged us to be open in the sense of clear what is defilement, what is not, what is defiled behavior, what is not. Not to hide it from others, not to hide it from ourselves. Otherwise there's no hope to learn or in, improve. So this is one aspect of our practice. We, we review our Vinaya training daily really, whether we're still following the rules or not. Then on a more subtle, more refined level, just momentarily reviewing our own state of mind. Is it wholesome or not? 
that's where by reminding ourselves, bringing up the Dhamma and reminding ourselves of Dhamma, little by little you can really root out craving and attachment. You know, becoming so committed to the practice that you don't give Kilesa an inch. You don't give it a space in your mind. You know it's going to lead to suffering. You know it's unwholesome. You know it has to be abandoned. Not giving in to Kilesa, not accepting it as something you're just going to let happen and carry on in your mind and take over your mind. Being that vigilant, that committed to the practice. And that sense of vigilance increases as we practice and get more skilled. It is a skill comes through training. And you, because you can see the suffering that comes from Kalesa, you don't want to leave them unattended. Because you know that's just leading to more suffering. You get fed up with the Kalesas, but fed up with wisdom means you're fed up in the sense you want to abandon them, not fed up and just feel like a victim to them. When we come into the robes, we also we make an agreement. We agree to take on the, the precepts of a bhikkhu, to abide by the, the practices. We wear these robes, the same robes. Everyone has the same kind of robe, same color, same style. We take on a certain amount of practices and lifestyle by agreement. And that provides a great sense of harmony in the community. When somebody just wants to do their own style, their own version, then of course it's, they've broken that agreement. So then it always leads to problems, disharmony, conflict. Often when we begin practice we have that view, mm, if I was on my own I'd have no problems, wouldn't have to learn to live with anybody else, learn to keep all these rules with other people, learn to get on with other people cleaning up their mess and all that kind of thing. We, we often have that view, we think, oh, if I went off on my own, everything would be fine. But actually, if you haven't learned to live in a community and follow the Vinaya, Ajahn Chah always pointed out, if you haven't learned that first, then when you go off on your own, you tend to, you can't live with yourself either, because you don't have a foundation in how to deal with craving and attachment. So the Nawaka years, they actually vital for learning how to live peacefully and harmoniously with other people. And before you can live skillfully on your own, you have to learn how to do that first. We often, because of our cultural conditioning, we have a lot of independence and pride and ego. We often think, oh, I'll learn to be at peace with myself first on my own, then I'll be okay with others. If you go that way around, you always find those people, they can never live with anyone else. They never learn that. And they actually often, they, their ego and their pride and their conceit increases by living on their own. Whereas when you learn, in the Nawaka years, you're learning to just give up to the Vinaya, learn to live harmoniously with others, give up your own views and opinions, your own ego and conceit. Set, you learn the skill of setting them aside 
then later on when you're more established in the practice you do go off on your own you have the right tools and skills to make, maybe make success of it still not a guarantee some people get lost and deluded by their own thoughts and opinions they still haven't don't have enough wisdom to see that but generally if you've learned in the Nawaka years how to live peacefully with others and then that stands you in good ground for being on your own. And the obvious one is like, you know, meta, learning to have meta for other people, not always to go to aversion when you have somebody else behave in a way you don't agree with or don't like. And you have to have at least have a skill of being able to bring up a metanimita when aversion arises in your own heart. You know, as a bhikkhu, you might say that's so absolute essential practice we have to develop because a seminar is essentially harmless one who's insulting or harming others is not a seminar so that means we have to develop the technique of metta garuna and not just as a, a nice thought an ideal but it's a practice that we can actually turn to at any time when we're falling into aversion towards other bhikkhus around us or other lay people if you go off on your own, it's actually vital because you encounter a lot of people who have different levels of sila. Some respect you, some don't. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant. Some are peaceful, some are violent. If you haven't established a good grounding in metta bhavana, then it can easily be a very dangerous and challenging time. It can get into a lot of difficulty. And if you haven't learnt to subdue your own anger to bhikkhus who keep the Vinaya living with you and how are you going to learn to subdue your anger with lay people and the sort of people you meet if you go wandering it's only going to get harder and more testing so a bhikkhu, a well-trained bhikkhu they have metta as a refuge and as a skill and a, and a, a mood, a skillful mood, a wholesome dhamma that they can just turn to at any time Sure, you can't control the world, so you just get pleasant experiences. There'll always be something that comes your way that you didn't want, you didn't ask for. Uncontrolled difficulties and problems come your way. But have you got the skill to be able to turn to metta when aversion arises? You know, when the craving comes up, I don't like this, I don't want this, don't like that person. Can you turn to a metta nimitta at that time? For most people, it's in the heart region, the solar plexus, to literally calm down a heart that might be fired up. Obviously, to calm down speech and actions so that we don't get into external conflict. But even if we've got enough patience and restraint on the outside, can we do it on the inside? Can we calm down our own mood simply by turning to the object of metta at that time when we recognize we've fallen into aversion. Ideally, literally, in the next moment, you're in a situation where aversion arises and you just quietly bring up your practice of metta, turn to that mood, that object, and calm yourself in that situation at that time. That would be the ideal. If we're not skilled enough yet, then we have to be able to recognize aversion that's taken over the mind and maybe go off, do some walking meditation or sitting meditation until we've quietened down, to recognize the value of that. 
rather than indulging the aversion, complaining, arguing, seeking revenge and all those sort of unwholesome things. And to have enough wisdom and enough training that we can just go away and sort it out and not do much else until we've sorted it out. You know, the Buddha said if he's walking and anger arises, well, he doesn't stop walking until he's sorted it out. If we're sitting and anger arises, he doesn't stop sitting till he's sorted it out. That's how you use patience, restraint, wisdom, mindfulness, the whole lot working together. Because if you really value your heart, you want to purify your heart from the kilesas, and you might have to just be very tough with yourself and say, hmm, this anger is a defilement. I'm not going to give in to it, so I'm not going to do it, go away or do anything else until I've abandoned it. Make it a priority, set aside all other comforts, all other desires until this, this priority job is sorted out and done. That should be the priority of a samana. Sure, we have other important business, we help the sangha, we do this, we help our relatives, we help the laity, we do this, we do that, we have all kinds of projects and things we do. But we also have to say as a samana though, where, where does our foremost duty lie? Where does our foremost responsibility lie? Is to keep our heart free from kilesa and to act as a samana. So you see in Buddhist countries, if a samana acts in ways that are not in line with being a samana, they display their greed, they display their anger. Straight away people say, this is not a samana. The samana sanya is established not just in the sangha, but in the laity. So not only do we bring ourselves into disrepute if we act in the ways of kilesa, but we bring the whole sangha and the whole religion into disrepute and people's faith starts to fade and dwindle because they maybe see us or come into contact with us. So it's not a small thing, it's very much the centre of our practice. Developing the skills to counter kilesa, the restraint of sila, the patience, the mindfulness and then the wisdom to reflect wisely when kilesa arises. You know, just to be able to turn in an instant, use wisdom to turn away from greed, turn it into a nekama or wise reflection of some sort, to turn away from anger, turn it into metta, turn away from delusion when the mind is so fuzzy or confused, to actually bring it back to the Dhamma. These are the skills that we're learning, these are the trainings we're undertaking. Obviously it takes time, so we have to give ourselves that time. So it's a long-term practice. The longer we give to our, ourselves this practice, then the more benefit will come. So not to be sort of greedy for quick results or expecting quick results. And most of us, we're, we haven't been practicing that much before we come into the robes. So once into the robes, we have to give it time for the mind just to settle down, to learn what we have to do and then start developing these skills. But the Buddha understood that, so that's why he gives, gave us a gradual training. Nawaka, Majima, 
Tara, Mahatera, on and on it goes. <coughs> really the way the Buddha defined Tara is not simply in terms of age, ten vasas, or age in terms of birth. Tara is according to behavior and attitude, whether we behave like a Tara. A Tara is somebody who's learned these skills. There's somebody who is considerate, sensitive, thoughtful of what they do and say. You know, they consider the Vinaya, they consider the Dhamma in the decisions they make, in their behavior. They act as a Samana, they've learned to tame the worst excesses of their craving attachment, even if they haven't reached enlightenment yet. But they behave in an appropriate way for a Samana. They can give good advice. They can maintain, uphold their sila and their mindfulness in different situations. They have knowledge, understanding of the practice that they can pass on to others, so they can be a teacher. And that's a terror. So sometimes in the time of the Buddha, a seven-year-old novice could be a terror because they had all those qualities. Or sometimes somebody who's been a monk many years but still haven't yet mastered their own mind very well may still not really be a terror yet. So we also practice humility. There's nothing wrong with that. Even Venerable Sariputta had humility. He could take admonition from a little novice reminding him that his robe was not put on properly. He could still be humble enough to put his hands in Anjali and say thank you didn't give in to his own pride or conceit, nor he let go of them. But as a good example to other monks, even though being a senior monk, he could still receive admonition in a humble fashion. So we've always got the opportunity to think more deeply about what we're doing. Training in sila, training in samadhi, panya, the qualities of a samana, upholding for our, not only for our own benefit but for the benefit of others. You know, salmon, and the world needs more salmoners. There's so few in the world. And the world is such a confused place. People are so hot, so hot with their own craving and attachment, so much conflict, so much suffering in the world. And the world needs more salmoners. So even just quietly doing our practice, upholding the Vinaya, developing mindfulness, reminding ourselves of the Dhamma and applying it in daily life. Already that is a great gift to the world. So maybe at this time, the beginning of a new year, you can resolve for this coming year, we will resolve to continue our practice, deepen it, put more effort in, in areas where we've been lacking, as human beings, we can do this. We can learn from experience. We can make resolutions to do things, to improve ourselves, to try harder, to learn more, to do more. We can do that. We're not stuck. There's no one who can really say, I'm stuck, I'm just going to be like this forever. That's another delusion if you're f falling into that view about yourself. It's not correct. We can change. And this lifestyle is one that really helps us to change. 
we can do a lot more good for ourselves, for others. So I'll leave you with these words of reflection for your consideration tonight.